Clara Sandlings, and Talk Immigration is supported by the Department of Politics and Immigration Research Group, both at the University of Sheffield. In 1987, Joseph Carrens, Professor and Fellow at the Royal Society of Canada, University of Toronto, pioneered the political philosophy on immigration by making the case for open borders. To Karen's, Western citizenship can be seen as a form of feudal class privilege that simply people are born into in the lobby. In his most recent book, Ethics of Immigration, he restates this case for keeping borders open. Yet some people find that this is simply too idealistic and that even political philosophers must think about what can be done in the real world. Perhaps especially in the world of today, which seems to be closing rather than opening its borders, this approach of open borders may simply seem unrealistic. Karen's himself has discussed this balance between, on the one hand, being too idealistic and risk making oneself irrelevant, and on the other hand, being too realistic and thereby risk accepting and entrenching some severe injustices. He joins us in this episode to talk about whether, when it comes to immigration, we should be idealists or realists or both. Right. So, um, you know, what I argued in that paper and then in, in the book where I use kind of a variant of the same thing in the appendix is that we need to use both. And my and, and I guess I still think that, that I'm, I'm not for telling any other philosopher uh, what they have to do. I, I think there's a defensible reasons for using either a highly realistic approach in which you're trying to give advice that might have some immediate benefit or a highly idealistic approach in which you're trying to sketch out pictures of a just world that's very far from what we have now. And and uh, the real danger, I think, is having people talk one another, have, have, have them criticize one another because they're taking these different perspectives and they have these different goals. So there's this kind of... Uh, unnecessary conflict uh, because people are uh, asserting a, they really have different purposes in the kind of reflections in which they're engaging. So, so um, in fact, I've just, uh, I've just finished a paper in which I've responded to David Miller's recent book, yeah. which won't be taken, and he, he presents it as a kind of defense of a realistic approach. And part of my in response to David, so the, the title of this is Why Do Philosophers Disagree? Why Do Political Philosophers Disagree? Uh, and it's trying to argue that really there's a lot more agreement than we, than we tend to recognize in these kinds of debates. Uh, and in fact, as people you know, might think, oh, David Miller and Joe Karen, they disagree fundamentally. But we do disagree on some things, but we also agree on a great many things. And part of the purpose there is to get people to pay attention to what they agree upon as well as what they disagree upon. And when they differ, try to see whether it's genuinely a disagreement or whether it's simply a, fo a different focus or a different set of concerns. Uh, so I don't think there's a, there's not a single right way, but it's desirable to be conscious of what you're doing and of its inevitable limitations. I suppose one sort of criticism, uh, well, I mean, you point out the, the issue, potential um, issues with both sort of realistic or idealistic approaches. But I suppose right. one sort of reason why there might be a methodological disagreement could be that if you if you take um, a, a so-called realistic approach, where you sort of accept a lot of 
um, the current state of affairs, that you might actually contribute to reify that and sort of entrench those sorts of institutions and, and just injustices. So, yes, and, I, I think that's a legitimate concern, and that's the danger of that sort of approach. Is and um, that's part of the reason why I. So let's distinguish here between what you might do in a particular piece and what you do in your overall project. It's part of the reason why in my book I made a conscious choice uh, to include both perspectives. But, but look, uh, when you adopt an idealistic approach, you're less liable to fall into that particular problem of legitimation of what needs to be criticized, mm. but more likely to fall into the... Uh, uh, context of only talking to other idealistic philosophers because mm. policymakers will pay no attention. So, and you know, so the the one piece that I wrote that is most widely cited, the initial piece about open borders. You know that I was conscious when I wrote that 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 meant that I could never actually be a policy advisor to politicians. Uh, or have any kind of public role, which was fine with me. I don't like to do that, but because uh, the very first thing you can see that some political opponent would do if I were publicly associated with some party or you know group, oh, that's the open border stuff, mm. and that would be used to discredit whatever else I had to say, say about irregular migrants or about uh, access to citizenship or things that have nothing to do with the open borders argument, as far as I'm concerned. That would be the strategy. So. So, and actually, that actually happened to me in a, in a law case one time. I was just testifying about Canadian citizenship law, and the opposing lawyers started to interrogate me about the open borders article. So, so you know, we have to make different choices, and different people can reasonably make different choices about what their goals are personally, intellectually, in their lives, how they want to interact, what they think will be most effective. And I just think it's a mistake to imagine there's a single model for how people ought to do this. Yeah, because that was going to be my second question, what do you think the role of migration scholars or philosophers should be? Um, and I, I suppose you don't think there is one particular one then. So whether, you know, the role is to make re sort of policy recommendations or whether it is more to challenge um, the current system. Um, yeah, I, um, I think both... Uh, you know, just as in politics, should you be inside the system or should you be outside? Mm. Well, actually need people doing both. Some of it is a question of temperament. Some of it is a question of your own personal commitments. But, uh, you know, you would not want to leave the political field entirely to people who don't have any other values that you share, right? So that's, but, you know, anybody who's got a serious set of values is is going to be disappointed and feel the limitations of existing political arrangements and public policies. So, so I can see why some people just say, I'm not going to do this, I'm going to always work from the outside, but I could also see why people would decide, I'm going to work from the inside and do the best I can. I, you know, again, I suppose this sounds uh, wishy-washy, but um, I just think there's reason to admire and respect the work that people do from many different perspectives. And to be conscious of one's own goals, aspirations, limitations, capacities, and choose on that basis rather than imagining there's something that everybody ought to do. Yeah, I suppose in your work you you do try to do kind of both in a way. You have some more um, 
uh, realistic, or so to speak, uh, you know, um, arguments and some of the more idealist ones, like in your book, where you sort of combine the two. But, you know, it's interesting that you just said that that's kind of a tricky combination. And might it be a risk that if you, if there's complete sort of division of labour, where some people do the more realistic and some people do the more idealistic um, theorising, that the people who listen to are the people who do the more realistic kind and actually, you know, fundamentally their their approaches or values or underpinning sort of uh, groundings of their theories might be actually quite different um, than the more idealistic approaches. Well, so they might be or they might not be. So that's part of the point, you know. So that's in this paper that I just wrote on David, I tried to show that although he makes an argument for kind of being realistic and again many people think because we disagree on the open borders question that we're in fundamental disagreement there are vast areas about uh, access to citizenship treatment of irregular migrants uh, uh, multicultural and integration where we are in pretty big agreement mm. then there are still areas of difference and disagreement and i you talk about those but so so rather than saying you worrying about this, it seems to me that what one wants to do in a particular context is engage with a particular person and see whether or not, if, if you're talking about philosophers, now, you know, policymakers aren't reflecting in this way, but but see whether or not, uh, what, what, what the nature of the disagreement is, what the level is, whether it's a fundamental disagreement about principles or it's a political judgment or it's a, an assessment of the consequences of different paths. So... You know, I do understand, you know, I think what you're saying is correct. There is a danger of legitimation. I've got this phrase in the book. Yeah. You know, don't have this idealistic approach. We may legitimate what should only be endured. Mm. So I do want to have that critical perspective. But, but conversely, you want to be able to answer the question, what is to be done? Yeah. Here and now. So both are important. So this leads on to uh, so to the to the um, next question, which is asked by Chris Bertram uh, over Twitter, where I asked some people if they wanted to um, ask you any questions, um, and he asks uh, a question relating to your strategy or your sort of method in your in your recent book. So uh, his question is whether your strategy of arguing from uh, consensus on liberal values is still valued. Is still valid in an age of Trump and Brexit. So I don't know if you want to answer that, maybe just briefly given an overview of what that strategy is. Yeah, so, so here's what I'd say in general, is that uh, in any conversation we have, if you're actually having a conversation and not just trying to score points, you have to look for some common starting point hmm. and figure out, are there any presuppositions and principles that we share in common and then see, well, where have we come, you know, what are the implications of those and, and, and proceed from that. So when you're talking about Trump and Brexit and, you know, so you, you wouldn't try to have a conversation with Donald Trump, not because of his views, but because of his unwillingness to kind of engage reflectively and have an argument. So as a, as a political philosopher, the only point of these conversations is with somebody who wants to have a conversation. So some people don't want to have a conversation, and there's nothing you can do to make them have a conversation. Mm. So set that aside. Then you have to be talking about, well, what about the people who, you know, they support Trump or they support Brexit, but they want to have a conversation with you? Well, then you should look for what you share in common with them and what you don't. 
and you should probe a little and see. And that's, in a sense, what I try to do. So, so what's a fair point, I may not have been clear about this, is that when I say I want to argue from shared liberal values, I'm not in assuming as an empirical matter that if you did a, a, you know, a survey, a public opinion survey, or even an in-depth interview survey, that the majority of people would agree with my account of liberal values, that they would say, yeah, those are my values too. That's a different point. I do think that the people who are reading political philosophy about migration are likely have some considerable overlap in their commitments to these sorts of values. Yeah. Uh, well, might not, but they're not going to be interested in engaging in the conversation in some ways. So that made me think, uh, going back to David Miller's approach, to take what people actually think, so what, for example, their commitment to their nation, um, right. and sort of trying to find common ground there, um, which... I don't know if that would maybe be a more fruitful approach, given the current political climate. Well, so I think actually, though, I mean, again, I try to spell this out in in the, in the paper that you know, if you look at the at the kinds of positions that David takes and the kinds of positions that I take on a whole range of immediate practical questions uh, and, and going through uh, the question about refugees for example so so if you take access to citizenship if you take the treatment of temporary workers if you take the treatment of permanent residents if you take the questions of kind of what kinds of uh, adapt cultural adaptations can be expected of immigrants and they what kinds of adaptations they can expect to the receiving society if you take the question of you know assuming that the state gets to control immigration what Constraints are there with respect to, say, discrimination and selection. Uh, if you take the question of refugees, it turns out, if you look at what he says and you look at what I say, there, on most issues, the differences are very small. And often, where there are differences, they turn out to be things of interest to political philosophers as philosophical questions, but not much relevant to policy. I'll give you an example. Uh, I think citizenship tests are, uh, in principle, unjustifiable because they rely on a conception of citizenship as something that you can, that is appropriately tied to competence, that's outmoded, that we no longer accept. But, as a practical matter, if the citizenship tests, you know, are relatively easy and most people pass them and they don't cost any money, it's not a big deal. So I think degrees matter and... So I'm not a, I'm not advocating for abolishing citizenship tests altogether. I am advocating for making them such that most people can pass them, as some states have. And you can argue about what that threshold is. So, so at, at some principle we seem to disagree, but really as a practical matter we don't. And the, and even if you look at the refugee question, if you look at what David says, now he sounds more cautious, but then you look at all the principles that uh, he adopts. Uh, as a practical matter, you know, he, so this leads to one of your next questions about the, what the EU ought to do. David says, well, there ought to be some system by which states coordinate and allocate responsibility for refugees, and they each agree to have some fair criteria for uh, what states ought to take in how many. And that's exactly what I think. 
and in that context, as I argue, uh, it's, it's pretty idealistic given the current political environment. Nonetheless, it's worth saying, worth drawing attention to. It's what we have to try to work towards. Uh, so I really think it's easy to exaggerate the differences between people and that there are advantages, both intellectual and political, in concentrating on the wide areas of agreement. I suppose that is quite also points to how far the um, the current policies are from um, from any from, from most political theory on refugees, for example, the sort of ethics of refugees. Um, given given yeah, that, so I, I think in this area, in some on some topics, current practices are very far removed from what any plausible kind of justice would require, and in other practices they're actually pretty close. So on access to citizenship, there are things we can criticize, but most European states, for example, have moved to change their citizenship acquisition policies to, to uh, create space for immigrants and their children. Yeah. Um, but, but when it comes to refugees, there is an abject failure. And, you know, so then uh, I'm leaping ahead to another issue here, which is... Um, your first question, if I can say it, is uh, yeah, yeah, sure. development in Canadian refugee policies, whereby the refugee welcome approach has been undermined by the arrival of more asylum seekers. Yeah. So I'll concentrate on that part. So, so my view is when. So I, I wasn't actually sure what you're saying there, but I think what it is is what we know is that at the height of the Syrian refugee crisis, Trudeau, in the middle of an electoral campaign, said we ought to take in, you know. 25,000, uh, 50,000 Syrian refugees. So in contrast to what was going on in Europe and in the United States, he ran on a political platform that said, we should be welcoming, this is a serious problem, we should reach out, we should be welcoming. And it was successful. Canadians embraced it. And then they embraced the uh, entry of many of these refugees. And then, of course, there are some adjustment problems with some refugees, as one can anticipate the you know, there's always a certain level of disillusionment that sets in after that. And then what's happened is, with Trump, you have a lot of people, or some people, but many more than had been there in the past, crossing the, the border from the United States to Canada and seeking refugee status. And this creates different kinds of problems. So there's some resistance to that on the part of the Trudeau government, and in, in terms of the Canadian population as a whole, which was happy to, in some sense, not everybody, of course, these things were always divided, uh, embraced the refugees who had been vetted and selected as opposed to the ones who are crossing on their own across the borders. So uh, I'm not, uh, I myself, I'm happy to take the people across the borders, but I think it's appropriate for a political leader to make a judgment about whether or not you're going to sustain the popular support for this open policy uh, if you uh, kind of don't pay attention to what is concerning lots of people. Mm. So so I'm in favor, you know, it seems to me that when you are a political actor, you have a responsibility to think about the consequences of your action and about what's possible in a given climate. Now, people can disagree about that political judgment, but it's appropriate for somebody like Trudeau to try to figure out, can you sustain support for an intake of substantial numbers of refugees 
uh, if you uh, ignore this problem or don't say things about it or don't institute some policies to limit the, this kind of uh, informal movement. Now, at the same time, if you ask me as a matter of principle, I'd say these people are entirely entitled to come and it is wrong of Canada to exclude them. But, uh, you know, as a political matter, I wouldn't be shouting that from the rooftops. I'm, I'm a philosopher, I'll tell the truth, as I say it. Uh, but, but I wouldn't, as a political advocate, make that the focus of my critique. I think you want to encourage people like Trudeau, and for that matter, Merkel, who, prior to the refugee thing, I was not particularly sympathetic to, but she did a good job in admitting so many refugees into Germany in the middle of that crisis, and then she pulled back and backtracked. Right, so all I was saying there is that uh, you know, I, I was never a fan of Merkel, who was conservative on the economic issues, on her treatment of Greece. But then when the refugees came, you know, she said, you know, we have a responsibility to take in most of those refugees. I thought that's the sort of thing that needs to be supported and endorsed. And uh, so even though standing back, even what Germany is doing may be inadequate by a, from a principled perspective. It seems to me it's important if you make an assessment that somebody is doing as much as is possible in a given political context, that's something that as a practical matter you want to support. Even though you may have as a philosophical understanding, it's inadequate. So I suppose it comes down at the end of the day about an empirical question of what sort of political actions I give a moment are going to create more support for the policies that would would be the most just ones, and, and what policies are going to create a more hostile environment? Yeah, so I guess the one thing I'd say there is that it doesn't seem to me that philosophers always have to choose politically. You, you know, we have different roles in life. So as a matter of political judgment, in terms of political action, it seems to me it's always, it is our responsibility to think about the consequences of our actions. Uh, but I don't think actually what philosophers say, for the most part, has so much consequences. So when you're doing your <laughs> philosophy, uh, then it seems to me you're free to decide which perspective you want to take. And just, you know, don't waste time criticizing others who, because they've chosen to take a different uh, perspective in terms of the kind of elements of realism and elements of practicality that they're trying to build into their analysis. Just be conscious, that, you know, and explicit about your own perspective. So then if you want to operate at an ideal level, even though it's not going to have immediate implications for policy, that's fine. And that's appropriate. And, you know, as you know, that's what I do too. So I'm not criticizing that. To find out more about Joseph Karens and the work we've done in this episode, please visit our website, talkmigration.com. That was all for this episode. Thank you for listening.